Right, so for those of you who don't know what Politico is, it's um, got a silly name. Um, it's a brand new um, political <coughs> newspaper. We're based in Brussels, founded by the American Politico, which if any of you watch House of Cards, you may have seen something about it there. Um, so we're basically uh, political and policy news. This is Stephen Brown talking at a careers event for languages students at the University of Cambridge in 2018. He was then the managing editor of Political Europe and later became editor-in-chief. In many ways, the talk is very typically Stephen Brown. There's modesty, there's humour, there's self-deprecation, like when he talks about Politico's unofficial recruitment policy. We actually have in Politico, um, I don't know if you know how to say that in the lecture rooms, but uh, we have a no assholes rule, um, which we actually, I got in, but uh, we try not in general to, so beware. But this is the voice of someone who'd had a big hand in redrawing the European media landscape. He was a key figure as political Europe went from scrappy startup to the dominant news organisation covering the European Union in just a few years. As you may have read, Stephen died of a heart attack on the 18th of March this year, at the age of 57. His death was a huge shock, and we're all thinking of his family above all. For us, he was a great friend, mentor and boss, genuinely and hugely loved across the newsroom and far beyond. In this special edition of EU Confidential, we want to give you a sense of the man who was the driving force behind so much of Politico's journalism in Europe. We believe it's a story well worth telling. It's the story of a man who enjoyed an extraordinary career as a foreign correspondent that stretched from the tip of South America to the Arctic Circle. And it's the story of a man who then took a leap of faith and ended up enjoying an extraordinary second act as he flourished like never before, helping to change the face of European journalism. You'll hear from people who knew him, and you'll hear the voice of Stephen himself, in various interviews and public events from the past few years. Well, first to start off with a confession, so um, to my great embarrassment, I'm now living in a country where I haven't bothered to learn the language. It's the first time in my life. I'm living in Flanders now, just outside of Brussels. And um, the only language in the small town that I live in, the only official language is Flemish, and I haven't learnt it. And I've lived there for two and a half years, and I feel awful. Uh, I feel awful because I've spent most of the time since I left um, uh, Cambridge uh, learning languages to do the job. As you can hear, it's quite a distinctive voice. I could never quite place the accent. It seemed to have a bit of London, his home city, but also a smattering of other influences. That could have been the result of having moved around so much. He spent some of his childhood in Australia and Austria, and after joining Reuters as a graduate trainee in the late 1980s, he set off on a career that took him all over the world. I did uh, modern languages. I was at John's. I did Spanish and French with a a huge bias towards Latin American literature and studies, which, um, as I'll explain, had a huge uh, impact on what I did for the what I have done for my life so far. I've struggled and, and sort of succeeded with varying degrees to learn Portuguese, Swedish, Italian, and German. And the reason I feel bad about not having learnt it because I think as a journalist, actually, learning the local language, learning languages, is a huge asset. Why? It basically allows you to tell a story of the people you're writing about in a completely different way. 
In private, at least, he also had some distinctive verbal quirks. During our editors' meetings, as he bashed out notes on his laptop, he'd sometimes make a sound that was almost like his brain constantly ticking over as he typed, a kind of... And many of his sentences included the word yeah as a question, as if checking you were still on board his train of thought. He's the European media, yeah, writing in English, but we're supposed to be a European media with pan-European audience writing about pan-European politics, yeah. So we try to create a pan-European newsroom. When Stephen stepped up to become the top editor at Political Europe at the start of 2019, at least some of us were surprised at how well he took to the role. He seemed to be in his element, dealing with pressure, leading a newsroom full of people with different backgrounds and levels of experience. But maybe we shouldn't have been so surprised. Stephen had faced similar challenges, actually probably much tougher challenges, two decades earlier when he worked for Reuters in Argentina, a country very close to his heart. I'm Juan Bustamante, Reuters cameraman. I met Stevens in 1997 when I was a stringer cameraman. I became a staff cameraman in 1999 when Steven was a bureau chief in Buenos Aires. And we worked together the next three years across the, the biggest economic and political crisis in, in Argentina. In that time, we were in the middle of the eyes of the world. So we felt we were preparing for the final match every day. And Stephen was the coach. Juan told us a great story about how Stephen expected and encouraged everyone to be a proper reporter. In the 90s, you know, you were a cameraman or photographer and you you don't talk about journalism. You just make images. When Juan was just starting out at Reuters, Stephen asked him why he hadn't asked a politician a question at an event in the midst of Argentina's debt crisis. Stephen told Juan he was a journalist just like everyone else in the newsroom. And he shouldn't just be filming, he should be thinking about the story. He asked me eh, what he told you about the debt. And I said, I didn't make any question. He said, why? I said, because I'm a cameraman. Forget about it. You are a journalist, you know. You're a journalist like him, like him, like him, and him, and him. It was so clear for me, you know. It was the first time that I understood the concept of journalism. Do you remember any particular, you know, scene or story that you think might sum up Stephen, you know, a particular memory you have of him or a story you worked on? I remember the story about when um, he took the decision to publish the, the news of the president resigning. Fernando de la Rua, uh, a journalist in, in the newsroom, had a source who confirmed that. And Stephen took him, asked him, who is the guy, when you meet him, if the guys give us another news as a source. And is it relatable for him? And the young journalist said, yes. So they publish it now. The local media was calling to Reuters and said, why can't you know that? It was pretty full of rumors, but he did the decision to publish. Uh, in the middle of the fire, you know, it was a crazy two days with many people dying on the streets and it was burning, you know. Everybody was exhausted. He was 
so clear always where we were. And he was very young. He was 36 years old. No more than that. Yeah. How did Stephen feel about Argentina? What did Argentina mean to him? It was incredible how he understood uh, the, the culture of the country. I would say very well the culture of the city. He understood very well how it works in Buenos Aires. Very, very well. Incredible, very well. The accent, jokes, the ironic stuff. If you are able to read the local media, listen to local radio, listen to the chatter on the bus, talk to people in the street, you're exposing yourself to to chance or serendipity. You might not just um, be researching the hypothesis of your article. You might find out something you didn't know. You might be sent down a sort of course of investigation that might lead you to something new, which is a shocking idea, I know. He could talk with, with, or get in an argument in a perfect porteño accent. He understood very well how to move in, the, in this country. He took time for that. He read literature of Argentina. He knew very well what's going on with wine. But uh, it, it, Argentina definitely was a very deeply important place for him. My name is Hans von Boichert. I'm a reporter with Politico's Brussels politics team. I think we both shared this admiration, this love for Argentina. And uh, sometimes I would just pass by his office and he would call me in and just to, to show me some Argentinian music, uh, like José Larralde, for example. And uh, we would listen to that. We would talk about Argentinian politics, which is, of course, a fascinating but very complicated uh, topic. He went to those stories at the end of the day. He always wanted the same thing, and he encouraged all of us to tell the stories. After eight years in Argentina, where he met and married his wife, Laura, and they had their daughter, Violetta, Stephen and family moved to the other end of the world, to Stockholm, where son Theo was born. Stephen ran coverage of the Nordics and Baltics for Reuters. My name's Paul Taylor. I'm a contributing editor at Politico. I'm a freelancer. I write a couple of columns a month called Europe at Large, which I always thought was the editor's sick joke about my girth. Paul Taylor was European affairs editor for Reuters when Stephen was in Stockholm and also worked with him after Stephen moved to become chief correspondent in Rome and later in Berlin. How did you first get to know him? Do you remember? First got to know him at a, at a Bureau Chiefs conference in, uh, in the early 2000s when he'd come in from Latin America and he was Bureau Chief, I think, in Stockholm. He'd come in from Argentina in, in its craziness into the sort of, you know, rather grey conformity of, of Sweden. You know, you had a right sense of humour, but you, you had to sort of draw him out a bit. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't a loudmouth. He wasn't a power player. He wasn't somebody who was trying to make his mark with interventions at an editor's conference. This is the kind of thing you hear a lot about Stephen Brown. He was serious about his work. He had big jobs, but he was never self-important. Here he is talking to me at the Munich Security Conference last year. 
Can you just give us a flavour of what it's like, this event? Because the word security conference doesn't really kind of begin to capture it, I think. Stephen? Yeah, so it's a real busy warren in there of just corridors packed, absolutely packed with people, all of whom think they're important and sometimes think you're important too, which is astonishing. You literally get into a lift with Madeleine Albright and the German foreign minister, and it's pretty intense, I would say. There's a lot of security people actually present there, ridiculous number of security men, considering how hard it is to get in. There's even a separate entrance, I noticed, on the map for weapon holders. Someone described it to me as Davos with guns. I think they meant that slightly differently, but it does feel a little bit like that. And here he is talking to our colleague Remontas at the World Economic Forum in Davos. So let me start today by getting a sense of, you know, how did Monday go for all of you? My main achievement today has just been getting here, actually, and also not falling on my backside in the ice. So I'm pretty proud of myself on two counts. He was funny. He would love to joke about his own boldness. I mean, if he missed an email for you from you, He'd sort of say, oh, my hair must have got in my eyes. I knew Stephen in his peaks and in his trough. He had a difficult patch at Reuters, as so many people did. And indeed, I think I did, where, you know, he just coping with the bureaucracy and with the new navigating the internal politics of an organization like Reuters with lots of bosses. So after a quarter of a century with Reuters, latterly as chief correspondent in Berlin, Stephen Brown was looking for a new challenge. Enter Politico, the startup that had shaken up political journalism in the United States and was now launching a European edition in a joint venture with German publisher Axel Springer. Stephen liked the sound of it. You know, the first thing that happened when he came to Brussels, I think for a recce, I took him out for dinner and we went, it was on the sidelines, I think, of a European council. We went to that pizza place on uh, La Brace and drank far too much wine. And, you know, he was so, he was so delightful, and, uh, delightful and grateful that somebody from his Reuters life was encouraging to um, spread his wings at uh, a Politico. I'm Matt Kaminsky. I'm the editor-in-chief of Politico in Washington. And I was the first editor of Politico Europe until the end of 2018. There was a collection of emails after Axel Springer and Politico announced the creation of a joint venture. And the very first one, I think it came within minutes of the announcement of the joint venture, was from someone named Stephen Brown, who was then the chief correspondent for Reuters in Germany. And I was like, ah, that's kind of interesting. And, and so I reached out in my first trip to Berlin, I think this must've been in January of 2015, we decided to meet at the hotel in the hotel lobby. I was staying for breakfast and I see Stephen and I, I still remember the look on his face. There was this kind of bemused sort of grin uh, sort of meeting me and he was wearing a suit, but he was clearly sort of uncomfortable in the suit and I wasn't wearing a tie. I was just wearing sort of an open neck shirt. And within, I think, five minutes of sitting down to breakfast, he's like, hold on, do you mind if I just take my tie off? Because I really don't wear a tie very often. I thought this is a pretty official meeting, but you're not wearing a tie and I feel much better without a tie. And we really kind of hit it off from that moment on. It's worth pausing here and trying to rewind six years to imagine the risk that Stephen and others were taking with this new venture. Now, already over 50, Stephen would be leaving one of the world's biggest media organisations to join this upstart. 
It was a bit like leaving a giant navy to join a pirate fleet, intent on taking Brussels by storm. Nothing like what Politico was planning to do had succeeded in Europe before, to create a sizable news organisation that covered the EU as a power centre without looking at it through a national lens. And there was no shortage of people predicting it would flop. Our mission was in some ways to make Brussels sexy. And I can't tell you how many times we were told a couple things. Many have tried and they've failed. It's really boring. There's no way you're going to make that interesting. We were wanted to be to understand what the insiders were doing and saying, but we were also an outsider to a certain degree. That I remember saying early on, we will never be co-opted by Brussels. Stephen Brown was up for that mission. What we don't want to be is is the House publication for the European Commission or the European Parliament or, or, or Council. We want to hold them accountable, not have them think that you know they can dump documents on us and we'll just trot them out or that we'll be, you know, their sort of spokespeople. So we're not bought into the idea, if you like. Neither do we oppose the idea. We're just writing about it, you know, journalistically. As I said to someone once, you know, if, if the European Commission, you know, or the EU were to fail, you know, it'd be a great story for us too, if it went down the tube. You know, I mean, it's not going to, very unlikely to in the near future. But so we're not bought into the idea. We're not Eurosceptic, but we're not Europhile either. We just think it's a, it's a very good story that deserves telling. He looked at the European Union as an institution that existed. He wasn't asking himself the, the question, should it exist or should it not? But that also enabled him to be critical about, you know, how it was when it made mistakes. Whereas in Brussels, I think a lot of the time there's this sense that if you criticize the EU, you're fundamentally endangering the European project, you know, which leads to a kind of Euro-patriotic journalism, which is as dangerous as patriotic journalism after 9-11 was in America or, or the patriotic, you know, enemies of the people type journalism in the UK. Politico 28 is not a beauty contest. It's not a list of people we endorse. And if you look back over the years, we've done it since 2015, you'll see a very wide variety of uh, people with lots of different political views represented there. And they haven't always been popular, purposefully so. At our first P28 dinner, we actually had people walk out um, because they disagreed with the uh, Brexiteer views of uh, one of our hosts, uh, one of our guests at the time, Nigel Farage. And in fact, this is what we're trying to do, which is to promote a conversation, a debate. Under the leadership of Stephen Brown and others, Politico in Europe has grown rapidly. It employs more than 200 people, including more than 100 journalists, and it's profitable. It's an organisation of many nationalities and languages, and it covers Brussels like never before. None of that was by any means assured when Politico launched in Europe just six years ago. Now, before we get carried away with the trumpet blowing, it should be noted that not everyone likes what Politico does in Brussels or the way Politico does it. Even some of our own columnists have their reservations sometimes. It was a different voice. It was an outside voice. It was an impertinent voice. Sometimes I, as an old fart, was a little uncomfortable with a degree of impertinence. This isn't the place to delve deeper into that debate. But it's also worth noting that while Stephen Brown wasn't short of self-confidence, 
he wasn't one to get carried away with the hype. He had a humility that's pretty rare for someone in his position. He was a listener. And if you're not a fan of political and you had a fair point, the chances are Stephen Brown was listening to you too. It's quite a dialogue, if you like, between us and our readers. And I take great pains to listen to our critics. So when we get some criticism from a qualified source, so that could be someone in an NGO, in the European Commission, in a national government, anywhere. Mm. If they're a credible source and they're complaining that our stories are inaccurate or biased or something along those lines, then I take great pains to actually talk to them. So listening to your critics, I think media who do not listen to their critics, to their qualified critics, yeah, are at risk of, you know, appearing arrogant and not taking into account the fact that, you know, there are areas where you might, might be able to improve your performance. Mm. I think we need to be as good as we think we are all the time, you know, rather mm. than just um, trusting that we are. Yeah. Stephen had both the, an intimate knowledge of the story he had really an intimacy through his various languages of the countries that we were covering. And yet he had a kind of a little bit enough of distance from it to be able to look at it critically. I probably have never seen him as happy as he was these last two years as the editor-in-chief in Europe. I think he sort of didn't give his full potential for some of the time that I knew him at Reuters because he was kind of a cog in a very large wheel. He was a medium to serious senior-sized cog in, in the wheel, but, you know, he felt like a cog. And he was sort of, you felt like he was in a corset. And suddenly, kind of, the corset was, he, he took off the corset when he came to Politica. Stephen seemed to be very much at ease with taking decisions all the time without apparently losing any sleep. And while there was absolutely nothing vindictive about him, he was quite prepared to tell people when he didn't think they were very good or when he didn't think their work was very good. Yeah, and he had a bit of an edge. Right? I mean, this is the thing. He could he could fight his corner, right? I mean, I don't know. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. He once asked me if I was trying to give him journalism lessons. <laughs> <laughs> and without batting an eye eyelid I, I said if necessary <laughs> how did that go down <laughs> well i think we we each knew where we stood <laughs> there are different ways to be an editor-in-chief some put the schmooze before the news you'll have a good lunch with a politician or a bit of high-powered hobnobbing that was not stephen brown's way he wasn't a newsroom micromanager or someone who grabbed a story for himself far from it but he retained a cub reporter's curiosity and a deep love for journalism after more than three decades in the job. You know, the other memories I have of Stephen was how happy he was going to those crazy summits. It was just, I think, probably as much fun as, as Stephen would want to have in his professional life. It was, you know, being in the middle of a fast-moving story surrounded by other great journalists Hi, my name is Saim Saeed, and I'm the assistant tech editor here at Politico. He had just come back from Davos, and I was asking him about it. And instead of telling me about the fancy people that were there or what the atmosphere were like, he just described it as, and I quote, fish in a barrel. 
because his entire sort of view of that global get together was okay we have a bunch of important people here that make news so i'm just going to go about interviewing them one by one and try to get as many as possible so he had absolutely no interest in schmoozing or any other of the activities that go on there and uh he just seemed to enjoy it quite a bit i'm lily byer a reporter here at political europe i remember last fall i was working on a short story on a verdict in a court case in slovakia The case was the murder of Slovak journalist Jan Kuciak. Stephen volunteered to help me get reactions to what was happening in the courtroom. In a different newsroom, perhaps, the editor-in-chief himself would not be involved in a short breaking news story. But Stephen really cared about media freedom. And he said at the time that it would be good to put something out in English to a wider audience on what's happening in Slovakia. Even as he led an ever-growing newsroom and continued to plunge into reporting, Stephen also had the time and the empathy to form deep personal connections with so many people he worked with. In the hundreds and hundreds of tributes that have been paid to him, that's the thing that shines through again and again. This is Zora Sheftalovich. I think there is no more obvious a testimony to the kind of person he was and to the kind of editor-in-chief that he was than the fact that he knew all of our most junior employees. He took the time to speak with them and his passing has had such a huge impact on some of the people who in other organizations probably never would have had a chance to have spoken to their editor-in-chief let alone to have loved them. This is Sarah Wheaton. I'm a reporter at Politico. You know, I've worked in quite a few different newsrooms and kind of the consistent unspoken message is that you need to have sharp elbows to get ahead and and that it's okay to be a jerk. And I think Stephen is proof positive that you can have a dazzlingly successful career in journalism while still being a a kind and a real human being. Surprisingly, we don't actually like people with sharp elbows. I know what people think about journalists, but actually in most <laughs> newsrooms, you don't want um, terribly sharp um, people like that. We want people who land scoops, absolutely, but you can actually be a scoop machine and a nice person at the same time. My name's James Randerson, Managing Editor of Politico. From the most inexperienced intern to the most senior of editors, Stephen cared deeply about his staff and they knew that. He was always asking how we were and about our families, knowing that many of us had taken a huge punt to move our lives out to Brussels for the Politico experiment. And it is the success of that experiment, I think, that is perhaps his greatest legacy. What we've tried to create is a European media, yeah, writing in English, but we're supposed to be a European media with pan-European audience writing about pan-European politics. Yeah, So we try to create a pan-European newsroom where we have reporters, um, editors, production people from lots of different European backgrounds. What do you think his legacy is? I think it is a... The living, thriving publication where we all work. Besides the institutional legacy that he leaves, I think there's something like, you know, that, you know, 
any great teacher has generations of students who think and talk fondly about, you know, how important that teacher was to their life. And it seems like with Stephen, there are generations of journalists who are going to talk about how important Stephen was to them or is to them, uh, to their careers, but to them personally. We have many journalists at Political who fall into that category. Among them is Eddie Wax, who heard Stephen speak at that Cambridge University event back in 2018. I happened to be doing the same degree he had done, French and Spanish. He electrified us all with his stories of his South American adventures, stressing the importance of talking to people in their own languages, inspiring us to keep learning them after graduating and to read literature to make our own journalism better. After the talk, all the little journalism wannabes like me rushed up to speak to him and off to offer him a tour of the student paper's offices. One of my friends received a photo, unprompted from Stephen in his inbox days later, of the coaster he had taken back to his office in Brussels. It had pride of place on his desk. Stephen was such an encourager. If you had to describe him in just a few words, what words would you choose? Leader. Leader. Yeah, definitely leader. Um, very humanistic, you know, very, very human. Uh, a good friend. He was somebody who regarded journalism as fun and really enjoyed his journalism and enjoyed being a reporter. He was a reporter at heart. He loved nothing more than, you know, bashing out quickly something for the live blog at a summit as well or or going out on an election or on a story. He he refused to be kind of chained to his desk as a manager. And he didn't feel that that was beneath his dignity when he became editor-in-chief. On the contrary, it was sort of what kept him, kept him sane. If you had to describe him in a few words, what words would you choose? Genuine. Um, uh, good. Very, very smart and yet ego-free. I don't know someone who has that combination. I don't know anyone who has that. Who, who is that in, in the way that so Stephen was? What we don't want to be is, is the House publication for the European Commission or the European Parliament or, or, or Council. We want to hold them accountable. If you can't read the papers, then you won't be able to see the world through their eyes, i.e. the eyes of the people in the country you are talking about. My main achievement today has just been getting here, actually, and also not falling on my backside in the ice. So I'm pretty proud of myself on two counts. This is what we're trying to do, which is to promote a conversation, a debate. So we're not bought into the idea. We're not Eurosceptic, but we're not Europhile either. We just think it's a, it's a very good story that deserves telling. I think we need to be as good as we think we are all the time, you know, rather than just um, trusting that we are. Yeah. The media needs to do a better job of reflecting more the diversity of its audience too. That sounds very idealistic, possibly, but, um, but there you go.